Okay, let me say good afternoon. As we're all coming together, good afternoon. We're going to go ahead and begin. We're going to start. We all have our Bibles, amen? Good. Let's make sure we have our Bibles, our swords in hand, and let's make sure everybody will be able to see the screen because we're going to cover quite a bit in this session. So let's bow forward a prayer. I'm going to invite you to kneel with me if you're able to do so. Otherwise, we can reverently bow our heads, but either way, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the privilege and the opportunity to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ so that we may understand your words and that we may be able to receive them within our hearts. And Father, it's our great desire that we would go from a head knowledge of truth and also allow it to bring about heart reform. And so, Lord, we desire to enter into the experience of the three angels' messages. And we thank you that this can happen by the power of your Holy Spirit. We invite him in our hearts, inside of this place, and may you truly anoint our minds so that we may even have the mind of Jesus Christ. Thank you, dear God, for hearing this prayer, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you all. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's go ahead and turn our Bibles to the book of Revelation 13. The whole purpose, or the great purpose, of the three angels' messages is to prepare us for the great events that are going to unfold through Revelation, the 13th chapter. Now, I want to show you something from Revelation 13 that I believe is startling, and we should consider how do we make sure that we are prepared for this practically. I want you to notice what the Bible says as we go to Revelation, the 13th chapter, and we're going to start right there at verse 1. Revelation 13 and we're looking at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says, starting at verse 1. It says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now this beast is none other than that fourth beast of what Daniel saw and vision in Daniel chapter 7. You'll remember that in Daniel 7, Daniel saw four beasts. One was a lion, the other one was a bear, the other one was a leopard, and then there was a beast that was so ugly and horrific that it didn't even have a, an animal to compare it with. It was just described as a great, terrible beast. Now, I'm going to show you that this beast that we're discussing right now in Revelation 13:1 must be that fourth beast. The reason why is because in verse 2 it says, And the beast which I saw was like unto what? A leopard. And then it says, and his feet were as the feet of a bear and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and seed and great authority. So we find that this must be that fourth kingdom. This would have to be the fourth kingdom, which was none other than Rome, because it is like the leopard. It has feet like the bear and it has a mouth like the lion. So therefore, the other three animals are encased within this animal or this beast. So the Bible makes it clear that this is none other than Rome. Now, notice what the Bible says next in verse 3. Verse 3 is the real key verse I want us to look at. It says in verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And how much of the world? It says, All the world wondered after the beast. Now, did it say all the worldlings? Is that what the verse said? Did it say all the worldlings? I didn't see that in the verse. Did it say all the worldly people? I didn't see that in the verse either. What I saw in the verse was it says, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now question, are you in this world? So does that mean that you will wonder after the beast? Somebody actually said yes. 
And the reason why is because based on how we're reading the verse, thus far it would look like we are. Now, there is a terrible, terrible consequence for wondering after the beast. Because those who wonder after the beast will receive its mark and therefore will suffer the wrath of God. Now, do you want that? No, I don't want that. I don't want that for myself. I don't even want that for my enemies, and I don't even know if I have an enemy. But if I do, I know for a fact I do not want them to suffer the wrath of God. But yet that's what the individuals will suffer for those who wonder after the beast. So therefore, you don't want to wonder after the beast, right? Amen? Would we agree we do not want to wonder after the beast? All right. Now, because we do not want that experience, we need to find out how can I make sure that I'm not part of the group that wonders. Well, let's notice what the Bible says in Revelation 17. In Revelation 17, we find a clue that makes it more succinct to understand who are those who will wonder after the beast. Who are these people? Notice what the Bible says in Revelation, the 17th chapter. The Bible says in Revelation 17 and verse 8, it says, Revelation 17, verse 8, it says, the beast that thou sawest and was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall do what? Shall wonder. So they that dwell on the earth shall wonder. Now notice this. They that dwell on the earth shall wonder. So here goes people wondering after the beast. But look at how the Bible qualifies who they are. What's the key? It says they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are what? Not written in the book of life. If your name is not written in the book of life, the Bible guarantees us you will wonder after the beast. Everyone who wonders after the beast are those that the Bible says their names are not written in the book of life. Their names are not in the book of life. So what do you think is the most important inquiry to individuals who want to be saved? How can my name remain in the book of life. Wouldn't that make sense? How do I get my name in that book of life and how can my name remain? Now, the way an individual's name enters the book of life is very, very simple because of the fact the Bible says if we confess with our mouths and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, if we truly see our sinful state and we see that there is no hope for us to come out of our sinful state except to accept the wonderful atonement of Jesus when he died on that cross for us, when we accept that, the Bible says we are forgiven, we are justified, and our names are entered into the book of life. It's called justification by faith. We confess our sins, we believe in our heart. And then we accept Christ and his atonement on our behalf. That's justification. But is it possible that a name can be taken out of the book of life? Yes, it can. And there's only one thing that'll do it. You want to know what to do it? Exodus 32. Let's notice what the Bible says in Exodus 32. What is it that can take a person's name out of the book of life? Notice what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 32. There's only one thing that'll do it. You see, the great work of Christ right now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary is that he wants to not only forgive our sins, he doesn't just want to cover our sins. He wants to completely blot it out. He wants to give us total victory over sin so that when the time comes that he says it is done and he's no longer in that sanctuary mediating, you don't have to worry about it because you are settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that you can't be moved. Christ wants to accomplish that work in us now. Now, what is it that can take a person's name out of the book of life? Exodus 32. If you're there, please say amen. Now, in Exodus 32... You remember the story that the children of Israel fell into apostasy. And as they fell into apostasy by worshiping the golden calf and so on and committing idolatry, Moses is now pleading on their behalf. The Bible spells it out when he says in verse 31, 
And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, oh, this people have what? Sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin and look at the heart of Moses, he says, and if not, what did he say? Blot me, I pray thee out of the book. This is a love that we will spend, brothers and sisters, much time seeking to understand that we can actually love apostates so much that we would say, Lord, our desire for them to be saved is so deep that if you would not save them, Father, if it would be possible, blot me out of your book of life and let them be spared. That is the love of a shepherd. A shepherd risks their life for the sheep. Shepherds do not leave the sheep to just be scattered abroad by wolves. Shepherds love the sheep enough that they'll stand in the middle of crossfire and get hit if necessary so that the sheep might be saved. That is the love of the shepherd. Well, here goes Moses pleading, Lord, please blot me out. I pray thee out of thy book. But now look at what God says in the next verse, verse 33. It says, and the Lord said unto Moses, whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. So therefore, how is it that someone's name can be removed from the book of life? If they sinned against God. If we sin against God, brothers and sisters, if we live in a life of sin, we will be separated from Jesus Christ. Christ did not come to this world to save us in sin. He came to this world to save us from sin. And when he wants to save us from sin, that means he wants to give us total, complete victory over sin. Now, if you do have a question, could you write it down for me? I don't want you to forget. Seriously, your question is very important to me. Very important to me. But I want you to write it down. And that goes for the rest of us. Write down your questions. So that way, when we're done, we'll take a few minutes and I'll be more than happy to answer your questions. Okay? Now, notice the Bible makes it very clear that the Bible says he who has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Now, the individuals who will wander after the beast, the Bible makes it clear their names did not remain. So therefore, I need to know how do I get my name in and how can I make sure that my name remains? Amen. Now, let's find out how can my name remain in the book of life? Go to the book of Revelation chapter three. Did you know the Bible spells it out? Did you know the Bible shows us the absolute heavenly assurance how your name can remain in the book of life? Notice what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 5. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, we find the actual literal solution on how we can make sure that our names remain in that book of life. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation 3, 5. He that overcometh, it says the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will what? Not blot out his name out of the book of life. How clear is that? If you want your name to stay in the book of life, what do you have to make sure? You got to overcome. Right now, many of our lives is a life of roller coasters. You know, a roller coaster goes up and it goes down, right? That's how many of our lives are. One minute we have victory over sin, then we fall back into sin. Then we have victory over sin, then we fall back into sin. Then we have victory over sin, then we keep falling back into it. When will it get to a point that we have victory and we stay in it? That's called overcoming. Christ says that I want to give you power so that you can overcome. This power comes through the experience of those three angels' messages. Because remember, we learned that the three angels' messages is more than just a message. It's power. The gospel is power if we enter into the experience of these messages. God says all these messages are designed to help you overcome. 
That's what's so beautiful about the three. That's why I love the three angels messages. It's designed to show you and I how we can overcome the attacks of the devil. Now, Revelation 13 makes it clear Satan is going to attack. But Jesus promises if we overcome. He says our name shall remain. Now, how do we overcome? How do we overcome? If somebody asks you the question, all right, I don't want my name to stay in the book of life. Well, how do I overcome? Because that's the only way my name will remain. Then what do you think the answer would be? What would you say? Faith is the victory. Amen. So 1 John 5, 4, dealing with faith. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. All right. Beautiful. Any other thoughts? What else would you say? Anyone? How can we overcome? I want you to notice this. It's almost too easy. It, it actually comes from the book of Revelation 3. It encompasses what my sister said here in 1 John 5, 4 about faith being the victory, but I want to put it in different language to make it real plain. Look at Revelation 3, but look at what it says in verse 21. How do we overcome? How do we do this? How do we make this thing real? Make it practical. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation 3 and verse 21. Now we're going to look at the verse, and then I'm going to ask you the question, what's the formula for overcoming according to the verse? Notice what the Bible says. It says, to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Question, according to the verse, how do we overcome? Say again. To be like Christ as Jesus overcame. Did you see that? The Bible says, to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne? Even as, even as, just as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. So therefore, all we have to do is zoom in on the life of Jesus and we can find out how we can overcome all of the attacks of the devil. Amen. Now, if there is one thing that the Bible makes very clear According to Hebrews 4 and verses 15 and 16, it lets us know that Jesus was tempted in all points, but he did not what? Sin. He didn't sin. So Satan never had an advantage over him. Satan never overcame him because he always overcame the devil. Now, there is another way that the Bible uses the term overcome. I want to give you an example of it in Hebrews chapter 6. Go to Hebrews 6 with me. You see, after an individual repents of their sins, and turns away. That's why John's message is so powerful, because John's message that we studied last night is a call to repentance. But after repentance, something else comes comes into place. In fact, do me a favor. Before you go to Hebrews six, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter three. Acts chapter three. Acts chapter three, then we'll come back to Hebrews six. In Acts chapter three, Notice what happened. You see, if we give the message of repentance as John the Baptist gave it, if we give it with the power, the spirit of Elijah that John the Baptist had it, if we do it, it will lead to the other results that leads to the end result. Notice in Acts chapter three, notice what the Bible says in verse 19. If we give a good, true message of repentance and enter into that experience, it leads to the next step and to the final step. What is it? Acts three nineteen. The Bible says, repent ye therefore. And then what's the next step? Be converted. So true repentance leads to true what? Conversion. And then when a person is truly repentant and truly converted, what is the next experience? That your sins may be blotted out. Now, brothers and sisters, that's deep. 
Because that goes to show there's only one of two things that gets blotted out in the, in, uh, according to inspiration. We read in Exodus 32, he that hath sinned against me, his name will I blot out, right? But now we read in Acts 3.19 that if we experience true repentance and true conversion, it says our sins get blotted out. Do you know the great work of Jesus right now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary is a blot out work? And only one or two things get blotted out, names or sins. Your goal, your goal, my goal is that my sins get blotted out and my name remains. That's key, brothers and sisters. Everything that we do in the name of what we call life, it must be designed to make sure that my sins get blotted out and that my name remains. Amen. All right. Now. Understanding that, now let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. This is what happens. You see, when someone goes from Hebrews 6, or rather when someone goes from true repentance, the next step is true conversion. The Bible uses another term for that in Hebrews 6. In Hebrews, the 6th chapter, let's notice what the Bible says now. Hebrews chapter 6, we're looking at verse 1. In Hebrews 6 and verse 1, here's the language that the Bible uses. Are you ready? If you're there, please say Amen. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto what? Perfection. Perfection. It says, let us go on unto perfection. It says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So the purpose of the true repentance is to lead us to true conversion. And another term that the Bible uses for the similar experience is called perfection. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but perfection can be a pretty scary word to some people. I mean, a lot of times when people mess up and they do things that are bad, there's a good old saying that people say. It's really not a good one, but people say it. They say, oh, well, nobody's perfect. And it seems like that's almost a very common vernacular amongst the language of God's people even today. Whenever we fall into sin, whenever we make mistakes or whatever it may be, we typically say, oh, well, nobody's perfect. But brothers and sisters, the Bible says, be ye therefore perfect. The Bible says, go on unto perfection. Now, does God play games with us? No. no thank you. <laughs> so therefore, God does not play games with us. So if God is telling us to do it, guess what he's also going to do? Give you every ray of power to make sure you get it done. Always remember, all God's biddings are his enablings. God will never tell you to do something that he's not going to give you every power under heaven to make sure you get it done. So therefore, what we're going to do is take a moment to look at this question, exactly what is Christian perfection? When we talk about Christian perfection, it is to the point that we need some points of clarification because today we even have in the Seventh-day Adventist church, Individuals who say, oh, no, we can never get perfect. We can never be perfect. I know of people who have put together doctoral dissertations and have given them to me to research and to look at to show we are always going to be sinning all the way up until Jesus comes. Do you know that there are Seventh-day Adventists who believe that? You see, if you're not Seventh-day Adventists, I understand that. Because the Bible makes it clear that there's going to be some confusion in the religious world. But God raised up the remnant church to take people out of Babylon, yea, confusion, and bring them into truth. So therefore, 
I understand if you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, but you say, well, I don't think anybody could be morally perfect. But brothers and sisters, when a Seventh-day Adventist says it, that's a problem. Somewhere along the lines, they got false education when they should have gotten true education. So therefore, now we're at a point that now we even have to educate Seventh-day Adventists on what really is dealing with this topic called perfection. So therefore, we're going to go ahead and look at it. What exactly is perfection? Well, the first thing we want to make clear is what perfection is not before we go into what it is. We're going to go ahead and cover what perfection is not before we start delving into what exactly it is. So let's notice the first thing. Number one, when we talk about perfection, we are not talking about absolute perfection. When we talk about absolute perfection, you know what that is? Absolute perfection means that if you were ever doing some manual labor on a barn or a shed or anything, and, you, and it required screwdrivers, and when you should have picked up a flathead screwdriver, you ended up messing up and picking up a Phillips head. You know what that's called? A mistake. By no means when God has called us into quote-unquote Christian perfection, it does not mean that you and I will not make a mistake like pick up a flathead when we should have picked up a Phillips head. It does not mean that a time may come that we might be driving down the road, gentlemen, and sometimes we are driving down the road and we tell our precious wives, I know that all we have to do is turn right and we'll be at the location. And then we end up turning right and we're more lost than before we turned. Ladies always smile, the guys always keep a straight face. In other words, it is possible that there are times that we're going to make a right turn when we should have made a left. It's called a mistake, but is it sin? No, it's not sin, brothers and sisters. God wants to make it clear that it is possible that even in Christian perfection, moral perfection, that we might say it's nine o'clock when really it was eight o'clock. We might pick up a Phyllis head screwdriver when we should have picked up a flathead. We might turn right when we should have turned left. These are very simple mistakes that can happen even when somebody is morally perfect before God. Therefore, we're not talking about absolute perfection. Amen. All right, so that's not what we're talking about. Also, we are not talking about, I want to make this clear, equality with God. When we talk about, quote-unquote, Christian perfection, we are not talking about arriving to a state where an individual now becomes equal with God. I'll share with you a little story. I remember there was uh, some friends from the Kingdom Hall. And our friends from the Kingdom Hall, they came and they visited with me, and they wanted to go ahead and share you know, their thoughts of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, they go ahead and they drop off books. And I figured, you know what, I'm going to let them in my house. You know, I know a lot of people, they like to duck and hide and everything when folks start coming to their door. I don't want to do that. That's bearing a false witness. <laughs> Acting like you're not home and you know you're home. Both your cars in the driveway. But nevertheless, I said, well, you know what, I'll go ahead and I'll let them in. So, because I'll be honest with you, when I let them in, I'm still going to get the best of both worlds either way. Because only one of two things are going to happen. Either when they come in and try to study with me, I'm going to share with them the truth of God's word and they're going to be converted. Or they're going to go ahead and try to study with me. And when they try to study with me, they're going to realize that I'm not going to buy into their concepts. So therefore, they're going to end up leaving and then they're going to mark my house and tell everybody else, don't go there. That's that stubborn Seventh-day Adventist. So either way, I win. So I let them in. So I say, all right, come on inside of my house. So they come inside. And when they come inside, of course, they have a mission. Their mission is typically to begin to show you that Jesus is not equal to the Father. And, of course, they want to show you that Jesus was the first person that God created. Well, we don't believe that as Seventh-day Adventists. Christians, do we? Is that what the Bible teaches? No, it does not. So let's notice something. 
I would one day took them to the book of Isaiah 43. And I, and I thought about this. Go, let's go to Isaiah 43. In Isaiah, the 43rd chapter, I want you to notice what the Bible says. Isaiah, the 43rd chapter. When you get there, please say amen. Isaiah 43. Now, what I did was I took them to verse 10 and I said, I need your help. Because, you know, this sister, she came to my room and she started to tell me about, you know, how God created Jesus first and then Jesus created everybody else. I said, well, sis, I have a problem with that. She said, well, what's your problem? I said, I don't accept that. And she said, well, why? I said, because I need to know who's talking in Isaiah 43. And she said, well, what do you mean? Well, let's notice what Isaiah 43 and verse 10 says. The Bible says in Isaiah 43, 10, it says, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Now look at this last sentence. Before me there was no God formed, neither will there be after me. Now I asked her the question. I said, do me a favor. I said, who is that talking? And she was quiet for a little while. You know why? Because if it's Jesus talking, it just said before me there was no God. So are you saying that Jesus is denying the Father? And then it says, neither will there be after me. So if it was the father talking, then how could the father be talking when he said there'll be no one after me? So therefore, whoever's talking here, they must have had a coexistence with someone else. And here it is that when we looked at that verse, she was like, you know what? I don't know how to answer that. And I said, well, until you answer that question, we can't go any further with this study. And lo and behold, she went and decided to leave the home and she never came back. Brothers and sisters, not only did God say that before me there was no God formed, neither will there be after me. But he also says in Isaiah 46 and verse 5, he even makes it clearer about his position of himself. The Bible says in Isaiah 46 and verse 5, To whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? The Bible is clear that perfection is not getting to a point or a state where man begins to say, I am equal with God. Amen? So therefore, when we talk about Christian perfection, we are not talking about absolute perfection. We are not talking about arriving at a point where we become equal with God. So therefore, what are we talking about? We're talking about entire cooperation with Jesus before he comes the second time. When we talk about Christian perfection, we're talking about individuals who can render their lives in total compliance to everything that Jesus tells them to do. Did Jesus tell the people to keep the commandments? Yes, he did. So therefore, we can do it. Jesus says that we must overcome. If Jesus says we must overcome, can we do it? Yes. yes. So therefore, when we talk about what is perfection, we're talking about entire cooperation with Jesus Christ before he comes the second time. What are the verses we have to support that? Well, we have Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We have Jude verse 24. The Bible says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, the Bible says, Now I pray the Lord God sanctify you wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely. And he says, and I pray, God, that your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, the Bible makes it clear that God says that I want you to overcome all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness 
in the sight of God. The Bible reassures us that Christian perfection is possible. But you know what? Most people say, no, it's not. It seems like no matter how much evidence we give, most people say, no, it's not possible. You ever met somebody who says that I don't believe it's possible that we can live a victorious life? You ever met someone like that? Have you ever preached that? Have you ever taught that? Have you ever believed that? Do you believe that? You see, brothers and sisters, an individual will only achieve what the mind believes. That's why Jesus would say, according to your faith, be it unto you. If you don't believe it can happen, Jesus says reverently, I I can't even help you myself. So therefore, if you and I can't believe it, then it won't happen. And that's why it is the most dangerous and deadliest thing. In fact, I'm going to show you that it is literally the echo of the voice of Satan when somebody says you cannot overcome sin. I'm going to show you that it's an echo of the voice of Satan when somebody says, oh, no, I, I can't overcome sin. You or you can't overcome sin. We're just going to keep sinning until Jesus come. Praise God for grace. Cheap grace. Filthy grace. To think that Christ would save us in sin. It's amazing. Do you know when we say that we cannot have victory over sin, you know, what we're really saying we're saying that Satan is more powerful than God. He has so much power that he keeps me in sin, but God is so weak that he can't deliver me from it. And brothers and sisters, if God delivered you from smoking, why do you think he can't deliver you from fornication? If God can deliver someone from fornication, why don't you think he can deliver you from alcohol? Why would God put a limit on victory? If you and I can look back at our lives and say, praise the Lord, I got victory in one area of my life. God says I'm ready to do it in every area. If you would simply let me. But people don't believe that. I believe Jesus knew that people would have a hard time believing it. Do you know that sometimes when people say they don't believe in victory over sin, then what you do is you say, well, wait a minute, Jesus did it. And when you say Jesus, you know what a lot of people say? They say, yeah, but that's Jesus. He's different from me. You know, a lot of people say that. So no matter how much we try to use Jesus as an example to say, hey, wait a minute, we could, we could live the life Jesus lived. A lot of times people don't believe that that's even possible today. Did you know that? Let me show you something. Take your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, I want to show you something. I, I always love to reason from the word of God, and I want you to consider this. I believe that Jesus knew I must help the people overcome. But Jesus also knew that if I'm going to help them overcome, I must do something. And notice what the Bible says Jesus did. Verse 5, Philippians 2 and verse 5. The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in who? Christ Jesus, who thought it not, or rather, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the what? In the likeness of men. Now, question. The Bible used the word likeness. Now, typically, when something is made in the likeness, it means that it's kind of something. It refers to it, but it's not exactly it. Now, that's typically in Western vernacular. But my question is this. When Jesus was made in the likeness of men, was he made a man? Yes or no? Was he like a man or was he actually a man? Yes or no? What do you say? How many of you, by the raise of hand, says, yes, he was a man. He was 100% a human being. Yes. How many of you say, well, he was a human being, but not really, not not exactly. How many of you say that? How many of you say, I have no idea? Anybody? All right, good. Now, brothers and sisters, 
When the Bible says Jesus was made in the likeness of men, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was a 100% man. It's a mystery. First, Tim- First Timothy 3.16 says, great is the mystery of godliness. It says God was manifest in the flesh. But nevertheless, he was completely flesh and bones. He was a man. Amen? So therefore, we must not allow that word likeness to always trip us up. Likeness does not always mean kind of, sort of, but it can mean that it is it. Now, the reason why I bring that point up is because there's another time that the Bible used the word likeness that I believe has created some trials for God's people today. It's found in the book of Romans chapter 8. Let's go to Romans the 8th chapter. In Romans the 8th chapter, we find that the Bible also tells us another thing that Jesus was made in the likeness of. And it makes sense. The Bible tells us that Jesus came, Philippians 2, 7, it says he came in the likeness of men, but it's deeper than that. It goes here, Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, notice what the Bible says in verse 1, where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now watch verse 3. For what the law could not do, In that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son. Now, I want you to catch the rationale here. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. In other words, God was telling people to keep his law. But the people, according to their flesh, the scripture says, couldn't do it. Are you seeing that thus far? That's what it's saying. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. When the people tried to keep the law of their own flesh, the Bible says they couldn't do it. God says, I have a solution. Let's finish the verse. It says, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, it says, God sending his own son in the likeness of what kind of flesh? What kind of flesh? What kind of flesh? God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for him, for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Wait a minute. It is not enough that the Bible says Jesus came with the likeness of men, but the Bible says Jesus came with the likeness of sinful flesh. And you know the word flesh means in the Greek? Nature. You mean to tell me that when Jesus came to this earth, that he had a sin Full nature? Is that what the Bible is teaching? That Jesus, our Jesus, precious Jesus, loving Savior, that when he came to this world and took upon himself flesh, that Jesus had the nature of Adam after the fall, sinful flesh? Yes. Brothers and sisters, it is an amazing revelation to know that God so loved man that he condescended and said man is stuck in a sinful state. And Jesus knew I must come and deliver man. And Jesus says I will come down on the earth and I will meet man in his state and show man how in his state, if he subjects himself to the spirit of God, that with a sinful nature, he can have complete victory over sin. And Christ knew if I do it, they can do it too.
And you know what I like about this? If Jesus had the nature of man after the fall, if Jesus had a sinful nature, brothers and sisters, then you know what that means? Then that means that we have been tricked in believing the Augustinian Roman Catholic lie that when an individual is born, they are born sinners. Born guilty. Born condemned. Do you know how many Seventh-day Adventists are teaching that today? We are born sinners strictly because of our nature. And brothers and sisters, if someone is a sinner because of their nature, and if Jesus came with the same sinful nature that we have, then that means Jesus was born a sinner. The Bible doesn't teach that. This topic was so huge that, believe it or not, it was an issue in Ellen White's day. The pioneers believed that Jesus had the nature of Adam after the fall. They did not say Jesus had dual natures and triple natures and all that other stuff. They made it clear. They understood the Bible teaches that Jesus had the nature of man after the fall. But it created arguments because some didn't believe that to the point that it was brought up in Sister White's day. And I want you to notice what she says. Now, watch this. There's a caution as we prepare to progress in this part of the study. There's a very serious caution. While it is true that individuals are definitely to experience Christian perfection, while it is true that we are definitely to enter into an experience where we overcome, we want to be cautious about something. You know what we want to be cautious about? We want to be cautious that we never start examining ourselves to the point that one day we begin to look at ourselves and we start to say to ourselves, I am perfect. We want to guard against that. That's not the goal. That's not the mission, brothers and sisters. When Jacob went through his wrestling with the angel, it's very powerful what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that when Jacob went through the wrestling with the angel, it shows that Jacob, his name means supplanter, sinner, deceiver. But brothers and sisters, Jacob repented of his sin before he got into his trial or his 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 wrestling with that angel. So in other words, Jacob was repented of his sins. He already asked God to pardon him and forgive him. So when the angel came to him, began to wrestle with him, Jacob actually had victory over his sins. He already confessed it. Are you following the story of Jacob? Jacob sinned. He deceived. Jacob is repenting and asking God for forgiveness. After Jacob does that, he then finds himself wrestling against an angel. Because of his repentance over here and he confessed it, his sin was taken away. Amen? And because his sin was taken away, he was guiltless before God. Now he finds himself wrestling with an angel. He wrestles to the point that the angel realizes that the dawn is about to break. The angel says, I must go away. And the angel says, what is your name? And guess what Jacob said? Jacob, who was clean. Jacob, who had no guilt upon him at that point. Jacob said, you know what my name is? And he understood names represent character. Jacob said, I'm a deceiver. My name is Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a supplanter. I'm wicked. He was free from guilt. But he looked upon himself wicked. Why? Because he was in the presence of the angel. Brothers and sisters, God's people are going to go through a time of Jacob's trouble, according to Jeremiah 35 through 7. And God's people are going to have the same experience of Jacob. A people who are clean, but at the same time. 
They have no time to gloat about how holy and righteous they are. Why? Because the ones who are closest to Jesus have no time to look upon themselves to see how great they are. Go to the book of Job chapter 1. Let me show you something. Have you ever thought about this? In Job chapter 1, I thought about this. This is very powerful. In the book of Job chapter 1, God had a comment about Job. Notice how God articulates it in Job chapter 1. The Bible says in Job 1, right there in verse 1 actually, it says there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was what? Perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So according to God's commentary about Job, God said he was what? God said he was perfect. Now go to the book of Job chapter 9. Let's notice what Job says about himself. Job, this perfect man. Notice what Job says about himself in Job chapter 9, right there in verse 20. God looks at Job and God says, I see in Job a perfect and upright man. Now Job, he's looking upon himself. And notice what Job says about himself in Job 9 and verse 20. The Bible says, if I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, what does he say? I prove myself perverse. Do you see it? Job, according to the Bible, God says, I look at Job. And when I see Job, I see a perfect and upright man. Job says, when I look at myself, he says, I dare not say that I am perfect. If I say I am perfect, I just prove myself perverse. So even though God calls us into this experience, this is not something where one day we're going to look at ourselves and say, I am perfect. Because as soon as we say that, we just sinned. Are you following? Now, the spirit of prophecy spells it out like this. Look at this quote. No one. This is from Faith That I Live By, page 140, paragraph two. No one who claims holiness is really holy. It says those who are registered as holy in the books of heaven are not aware of the fact. Sounds like Job, doesn't it? It says and are the last ones to boast of their own goodness. Praise God. Do you know the ones who are truly experiencing Christ, their righteousness, the ones who are truly holy as God is holy are the last ones to boast about it and say, look at how holy I am. Amen. Now, Sister White in her day, she knew, she understood that this issue of the nature of Christ was a big issue, even though it was a key to victory over sin. And therefore, I want you to notice how she articulates it in her own words. She says this, the son of God was assaulted at every step by the power of darkness. It says after his baptism, he was driven of the spirit into the wilderness and suffered temptation for 40 days. Letters have been coming into me affirming. Now, look at this. Letters were coming into her affirming that Christ could not have had the same nature as man. So this was an argument that existed even in the days of Sister White. She says letters came into her saying Christ could not have the, nature, the same nature as man had. It says, for if he had, he would have fallen under similar temptations. So people were saying, if Jesus had the same nature as us, then that means Jesus was a pervert like we are. That was a lot of people's conclusions. Therefore, the rule was he could not have had our same nature because no one would dare say that Jesus was a perverted man, a vile man. Are you following? But I want you to look at how Ellen White responded. She went and responded by saying this. Powerful. 
if he did not have man's nature, he could not be our example. It says, if he was not a partaker of our nature, he could not have been tempted as man has been. It says, if it were not possible for him to yield to temptation, he could not be our helper. It was a solemn reality that Christ came to fight the battles as man. In man's behalf, his temptation and victory tell us that humanity must copy the pattern. Man must become a partaker of the divine nature. First selected message is 408. And so we find that Jesus saw it necessary to take upon himself our nature so that he could overcome in that nature and show us how to do the same thing. It goes back to Revelation 3.21. We can overcome as he overcame. If Jesus did not have our nature, brothers and sisters, then that means that he had an advantage over us in his humanity. If Jesus had the nature of Adam before the fall, brothers and sisters, that means he can't relate to us. And that means the Bible's telling a lie when it says in Hebrews 4 that it says that he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Now, some people like to say infirmities is dealing with human weaknesses, like getting tired, getting hungry, and all these things. Let me ask you something. To get tired, are you tempted to get tired, or is that a natural physiological body reaction? That's a natural physiological body reaction, to get tired. When an individual gets hungry, are you tempted to get hungry? No, brothers and sisters, you're not tempted to get hungry. It's a natural physiological body response. When your stomach is empty and it has not been nourished, the body is going to give a cry to say, I need more nourishment. So to say that Jesus had the nature of man only applying to weaknesses like falling asleep and getting tired, getting sick, and the list goes on, brothers and sisters, that's not temptation. If Jesus was tempted like how we're tempted then that means that it has to be something beyond human weakness. Are you following? Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not. Now, this I want to make clear. We say, so are you saying that Jesus lusted after women? Are you saying that Jesus had all these vile things that goes on in the lives of regular human beings day to day? Brothers and sisters, the answer is no. You want to know why? Because those are not natural behaviors. Those are learned behaviors. When a man begins to lust after a woman, that's something he learned. When an individual has a habitual habit of lying, brothers and sisters, that's something they learned. So when it comes to Jesus and his nature, brothers and sisters, it's not saying that he just comes in loving to lie or loving to lust after women. These are learned behaviors that we learned at some point in our experience. The temptation that Jesus relates to us and we to him is that the foundation of all temptation is to do what self wants rather than what God wants. It is in that context that Christ was also tempted. The natural call of the human nature is to do what self would want to do rather than to do what God wants us to do. That's the natural call of temptation. And it's manifested in a thousand ways. It is only in the context that Jesus had a nature that naturally wanted to do what self wanted to do rather than what God would want to do. And therefore, Jesus had to overcome that nature 
And there's a special way that he did it, but you know what? That special way he did it is available to you and I today. We can overcome truly as he overcame. You know, one day I was thinking about it. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's notice what the Bible says. In Hebrews, the second chapter, I want you to see how the Bible spells this out for us. Hebrews chapter 2. When you get there, please say amen. Now in Hebrews, the second chapter now, let's notice what the Bible says. In Hebrews 2, starting at verse 14, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, it says, He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them through fear of, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not. Now notice what the Bible says. This is so clear. He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now that's a clear statement, is it not? The Bible says he did not take on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Notice what it says next now. It says, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Now I thought about this. I said, okay, behooved. When I thought about the word behooved, I said, oh, behooved. That, I thought behooved always meant it moved him or it touched him. Like it was an emotional stimulus. It, it, it moved him with love that he would be made like unto his brethren. Now look at the reason why it behooved him. It says it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. When I first looked up the word behoove, I thought that it, again, meant just he was moved with love or compassion. But then I decided to pull out the dictionary on it. I decided to pull out the Greek dictionary. And when I pulled out the Greek dictionary, I want you to notice what it said on the word behoove. You know what the word behoove means? This is what it says. It says behoove means to owe. To owe. To be under obligation. It says to be bound or be indebted. It says it was a must or a need. So when you look back at Hebrews chapter 2, look at it again now in verse 17. Now put the new wording in there. Hebrews 2 and verse 17. And now let's notice what the Bible says. Hebrews 2 and verse 17. This is what it says. It says, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. It, he owed it to us to be made like us. He was under obligation to be made like us. He was bound or indebted to us to be made like us. He wa it was a must or a need for him to be made like us, brothers and sisters. Why? So that we may overcome as he overcame. Christ saw it necessary. I must come with their nature. This is the reason why there truly is no excuse for sin. You ever hear people say the devil made me do it? Let me tell you something. I want you to think with me. If the devil could make human beings sin, he definitely should have made Christ sin. Because Jesus was a human being. And if Satan could have gotten Jesus to commit sin, the whole plan of salvation would have been killed. So if the idea that Satan can make people sin, if that idea was true, and thank God it's not true, 
If the idea was true that Satan could make people sin, brothers and sisters, he would have made Jesus sin. But Jesus, when he came on this earth with a human nature, with the nature of Adam after the fall, is a living testimony that you and I can do it too with a sinful nature. There is no excuse for sin. There's no such thing as I had to do it. There's no such thing as the devil made me do it. Jesus says, I'm going to kill all those arguments. I'm going to come in the lowliest of life with the lowest nature. And I'm going to go ahead and show man how he can be holy, even as God in heaven is holy. It's a solemn thought, brothers and sisters. Solemn thought. Now, the reason why many people struggle with this idea is because they begin to think certain things. As an example... When somebody asks the question, well, why did Jesus become like us? You know, well, why did he do it? It says he took upon himself human nature for no other purpose. I want you to look at this now. This is from Upward Look, page 313. He took upon himself human nature for no other purpose than to place man on vantage ground before the world and the whole heavenly universe. When Christ took upon human nature, he did it for the purpose to put us on vantage ground against the devil. He says, I'm going to do it, and now you'll be able to do it too. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. People often ask, well, what about the babies then? Because people always say babies are naturally born sinners. And you know one of the things that confuses people is David's prayer. If there's anybody in this room right now that believes we're born sinners, I can almost guarantee you it is especially because of David's prayer. You remember when David says, behold, I was born in sin and shapen in iniquity. A lot of people read that and they say, see, David says right there, we're born sinners. Well, first of all, that's not what the verse said. The verse did not say we are born sinners. That's not what the text said. The text says, I was born in sin and shapen in iniquity. Now, let's watch this. In Psalm 51.5, go there with me now. Look at this very quickly. In these next few moments we have. Psalms 51. And verse 5, watch this. In Psalms 51 and verse 5, the Bible says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So this is what people believe. They say, well, there you go. David says, in sin did my mother conceive me, right? Well, now let's go ahead and take a look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. In Romans, the first chapter, let's see what the Bible says. Romans chapter 1. Because if, let, let's, let's, let's say we're in agreement with the false theology, and I'm guaranteeing you it's a false theology. But let's say we're in agreement with the false theology that because of David being born in sin, as it says, did my mother conceive me, and that means that he was born a sinner. Now, a sinner is someone that's guilty before God, amen? Can we agree with that? If you are a sinner, you're guilty. You are, if you're a sinner, you're guilty. Now, if David's statement that I was born in sin means that I was born a sinner, we have a big problem. You know what the big problem is? Romans chapter 1 and verse 3. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. The Bible says, and the word flesh means what? Nature. Nature. Very good. I like this young man. He, he knows how he's, he's recording that information. Amen. Bless your heart. The Bible says 
If David, when he said, I was born in sin, if that statement means I was born a sinner, the Bible says Jesus was born with the same nature David had. Because the scripture just said it. It says concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the nature. Are you saying then that Jesus was born a sinner? Everybody knows. Heaven forbid. Brothers and sisters, David was simply saying, behold, I was shaped in iniquity. I was born in sin. I was born with the natural bend to do that which self wants to do rather than God. And David said, and I did it with Bathsheba. That's all that he was saying in the prayer. David was not saying, I am born a sinner. And people say, well, what about the babies? What about the babies? Now, I want to go through this before we close. My clock says 428. It says, but what about the babies? Now, a lot of people believe that babies are just born sinners and, and babies have no other way of being born in this world. Do you know the Bible doesn't teach that? The Bible doesn't teach that. Notice what the Bible says. Look at this. Even from the mother's womb. Look at what the Bible says. Every single one of us in this room could have been born. It says, number one. In Psalms 22, 9, but thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Babies can be recognized as God's own property even from the womb. Notice what it says in Psalm 71, 5 through 6. For thou art my hope, O Lord God. Thou art my trust from my youth. By thee have I been holding up from the womb. Thou art he that took me out of my mother's bowels. God can keep you, brothers and sisters, starting from the womb on out. Notice what else it says in Psalms 139, 13. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Now, brothers and sisters, you got to understand the God of the Bible, the Bible says, is no respecter of persons. God is not going to do this for one person and not do it for you. The only reason why children are born in this world and get caught up in all sorts of sinful behavior, I'm sorry to say it, but it is truth. It is because of the parents. It is because of mother and father not following the counsels of God, not doing what God has told us to do, not raising the children as Jesus and John the Baptist. Always remember, the reason there was a John the Baptist was because there was first an, a Zacharias and an Elizabeth. The reason we have a Jesus was because there was a Joseph and there was a Mary. All of us, all of our children could have been born in this world of these same promises if we as parents would have played our parts. Notice what else inspiration says. Jeremiah 1, 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you and I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. And finally, Luke 1 and verse 15, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. All of us in this room could have been born filled with the Holy Ghost from, our womb, from the mother's womb. It could have happened. It was only because the parents did not understand, perhaps, that I'm, I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, it could have happened like it did for John, like it did for Jesus. Could have happened. Look at this precious little baby. Isn't that a cute little baby? It says a promise for our little ones. Look at this promise from Desire of Ages 512. Even the babe in its mother's arms may dwell as under the shadow of the Almighty. Through the faith of the praying mother, 
through the faith of the praying mother. Do you understand? This is what I'm saying. The parents, we play this role of how our children could be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. It says, through the faith of the praying mother, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. If we will live in communion with God, we too may expect the divine spirit to mold our little ones even from their earliest moments. At no point, because a lot of people say, well, Jesus was born a holy child, but our children are not born holy children. The Bible says that's a lie. The Bible says our children could have been born with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus was born. At no point in Jesus's humanity could he have an advantage over us. At no point. Otherwise, he's disqualified. He came with our nature. But when he was in his mother's belly, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He had a nature called divine that was able to overcome the nature called sinful. And you and I could have had the same thing from the womb. At no point. Are you following? And therefore, let us never, ever repeat the lie. It says very clearly, men and women frame many excuses for their proneness to sin. It says sin is represented as a necessity, an evil that cannot be overcome. But sin is not a necessity. Christ lived in this world from infancy to manhood. And during that time, he met and resisted all the temptations by which man is beset. He is a perfect pattern of childhood, of youth, of manhood, faith that I live by, page 219. And our last quote, Satan's fatal sophistry. Remember I told you that there are people today who say we cannot get victory over sin? Remember I told you that? And I told you that they're echoing the voice of Satan, right? Look at what Satan says. In Great Controversy 489, it says, through defects in the character, Satan works to gain control of the whole mind. And he knows that if these defects are cherished, he will succeed. Therefore, he is constantly seeking to deceive the followers of Christ with his fatal sophistry that it is impossible for them to overcome. Satan has told this lie. And my hope and my prayer is that no one would leave this tent echoing that lie that we, it is impossible for us to overcome. Parents, don't ever tell your children that. Let them know they can overcome. If they messed up, you go ahead and show them how to get it right with Jesus and start all over again. Do not put those poisonous words in the mind of a children. You always do this, brothers and sisters. That's damaging to a child. So often we say always when it's not always. And if a child keeps hearing that they're always messing up and they're always doing wrong and they're always doing this, then before you know it, that child begins to develop a psychology in their mind that I'm worthless. I can't do anything. And because their values drop down and they cannot even see who they are in Christ anymore, before you know it, it's easy for them to now surrender to some of the most basic and vile sins that are taking place in this world today. And sometimes they'll even go as far as taking their own life. Affirm in your youth, you really can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can overcome every sin. When a baby does something wrong, do not applaud that child and say, oh, look at how cute it is that that child's being rude. Because what the child does at one that's cute, they'll do at 13 when it's not cute anymore. Correct them when they're young. So that they may grow up and understand what proper Christian behavior is. We must do this, brothers and sisters. And so in our next session, we'll talk about the step-by-step -step process of how Jesus overcame. You know, Jesus left an example for us. 
We'll look at that example in our next few moments of our step-by-step process, and then we will close out for the day. If it is your desire, if you can say, now I'm, I'm going to go as far as this. I'm curious, but I like, I like things like this, environments like this. There's so many of us here. I'm going to ask you a question. If you believed, if you believed, if you believed that it was not possible to live a life victorious over sin, But as a result of seeing how Christ condescended to come down on this earth and take upon the same nature like you and I have so that he can show us how he did it. And if we walk in his footsteps, we'll have the same success. If you came to this meeting and you did not believe that we could have victory over sin. And now you can see because of what Jesus did that we can do it. Would you stand to your feet? Is there one person who is honest enough to say, you know what, that was me. I I didn't really believe that Jesus took this fallen nature. I didn't believe that Jesus would have done this, but he's doing it for me. Praise God. You see what I'm saying? Because this is where the deliverance comes in. I firmly believe that GYC and all these meetings, they got to be something bigger than just a simple stimulus to people's hearts. It has to be life changing. It has to be life changing. There must be messages that causes individuals to turn from their ways, brothers and sisters, and to see Christ, their righteousness. Brothers and sisters, if you're willing to cooperate with Jesus now and let him live his victorious life out within your life beginning today, that means no more excuses for sin. No more excuses for sin. Would you please stand with me? We're all standing together because we're saying, Lord, I want you to live out thy holy and righteous life within me. You will find that as Christ did it, he will enable you to do it. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we can do all things through Christ who is our strength. And we accept, dear God, that you are showing us that truly and indeed Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to come down and truly be like us. No wonder the Bible says great, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. Lord, I pray, help us ever to hold on to this truth. And I pray that as a result of it, may we never make an excuse for sin. And may we stand with thee, though the heavens may fall. Is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.